As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Everybody to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. On today's episode, Pep Guardiola rants at his staff, and Antonio Conte screams in joy as Spurs get the win against City, and Harry Kane is once again top boy. Dortmund knocks six past a Gladbach team in some strife, but Gio Reyna's hamstring injury means that USMNT fans have lost all hope in life. Athletic Club get three points in gloating rights in their Bass Derby win, while Michaela Moore would prefer never to watch her team's loss to the USWNT ever again. There's wins for Man United and Barca, plus losses for PSG and Inter in our final roundup. But before we can talk about that, I should introduce my hosts. First up is the man who knows Midge Purse in any lineup is how it's got to be. Let's say hello to my buddy, Mr. Joe Lowry. Oh, Taylor, the rhymes today are so good. Man, you are (laughs) filling in for Ryan very admirably to start this thing off. Thank you, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you for watching the She Believes Cup. We did not talk about the USA's opening game, but we will be talking about their big win. Joe Lowry, nice to watch the U.S. Women's National Team once again, huh? It was. It really was. It had been a while for me dating back to really when we last digested them at the Olympics, you, me, and Jordan. I actually went back and listened to one of our episodes from the Olympics, Uh and we were down on a team that was down, justifiably, Mm -hmm. and now they're back, baby, scoring five goals, three Mm -hmm. own goals in one game. Man, uh, things things are looking up. All right. I look forward to talking about that and many other things. With us, as well, is a good Scottish lad who knows Billy Gilmore will never play bad. Even if he scored a hat trick of own goals against his men, he'd still be loved by Mr. Graham Ruthven. That that love is unconditional <laughs> for, for Billy Gilmore. You're absolutely right. I like how, um, talking about the the anomaly of three own goals in one game, I like how last week on Listener Questions, we came up with all sorts of weird and wonderful, yep. wonderful yeah. hat tricks, and yet... None of us came up with an, a, a hat trick of own goals because that seemed a little too far fetched, and I yeah. can't quite believe it happened in real life. And it's even more insulting that I believe it was a perfect hat trick. I believe it was right foot, yeah. left foot, and a header. So it was a perfect hat trick of own goals at that. I feel very bad for Michaela Moore. As yeah. I said, we'll talk about that one. But. We're going to start with the Premier League. Liverpool raised Norwich's hopes when the Canaries went ahead early in the second half, but the Reds fought back for a 3-1 win, kept their title-challenging hopes alive. Those helps 
Hopes, excuse me, were no doubt increased just a bit more after Tottenham wrote a late winner from Harry Kane to secure all three points. Man City is now six points ahead of Liverpool. Liverpool have a game in hand and a home date against Man City in March. Graham, how much of this episode do you think we're going to have to spend talking about Harry Kane and Son Heung Min? Because they were pretty, pretty good. They were. They were. And this was the this was the best talking about Kane specifically, because I think Son has played well at points this season, but Kane has kind of been a shadow of his old self this season, as has been well documented documented. So it was quite incredible to see him back to his best. And I saw some people on Twitter and it might have been the subject of a of an article, I can't remember who wrote it, but basically saying that this was one of the best individual performances in Premier League history. Now, I don't know if that's going too far. I would have to sit down and think about that and come up with some candidates. I'm sure there's some other exceptional individual performances, but that kind of tells you the level that he that he played at. And it, it just felt like Harry Kane was, was back to being Harry Kane. I think the thing that differentiates Kane from other strikers it isn't the fact that he's a great goal scorer there are other great goal scorers I think Lewandowski is probably a better goal scorer than Harry Kane but the thing that makes Kane so special is the way that he conducts attacks as well as getting on the end of them and in that respect I think maybe only Karim Benzema is as good at Kane at doing this as good as Kane at doing this and he was just a nightmare for Manchester City, which obviously there is an irony in that, given that he was the player that they wanted last summer. They spent most of the transfer window going after him. They didn't get him. It seems like they're still interested and will go back from this summer. And this was just a demonstration of everything that he brings to the football pitch. The way that he finished that second Spurs goal, that, that finish was absolutely incredible. And the way that he... It comes across his body, it's on the bounce, he opens up his foot, he finds the top corner, he makes it look so easy. That is such a difficult skill to do. But also the fact, the, the way, as I say, he was conducting attacks, he was sending Son through for the, the first goal, a brilliant pass there, he kept on doing that time and time again. Uh, I think the third goal as well, he, or is it the second goal actually, he sprays the pass out and then he makes up the ground yeah. to yep. get into the box. So he was just... He was just doing everything. It was it was absolutely incredible and a reminder of just how good he can be. Two things there. The first would be, uh, I agree with you, Graham, that it's nice to have Harry Kane back and scoring goals. That goal, especially the one you're mentioning, the half volley one, feels like one that if you're not in form, if you're not confident, you do sky that one because it's bouncing. You're kind of falling yeah. away. You've got to get your body positioning right. Easy to hit that over. Easy to hit it wide. Commendable that he puts it on frame let alone puts it in like the top corner. Great goal from him. I would also say credit to Graham Ruthven because my question was going to be, what is it that makes Harry Kane so special? Obviously, he's a great goal scorer, but what are the other things we should talk about? Graham has already answered that. So instead, I'll ask Joe. Joe, uh, lots of praise for Harry Kane. You want to throw some to uh, Son as well? Oh, man, I would love to. His his movement in behind made this game, or, or made it halfway for Spurs. The other half was Harry Kane's distribution, right? The, the best example of that that I can think of really is the sequence for the first goal that Kulishevsky scores in the fifth minute. Tottenham, and, uh, Tottenham are in buildup from a goal kick, and they play short. The ball eventually comes out to Ben Davies at left center back in buildup. Davies plays it up to Kane, who's dropping in centrally. And as Kane drops in, he pulls Ruben Diaz with him and plays this beautiful first touch ball to Son in behind. It is, it's one of the more aesthetically pleasing balls that you'll ever see, really. It's that good. And I know I'm supposed to be talking about Son, and I will. So Kane plays that ball, but the other half of the equation here is Son making that run in behind. And he doesn't just make it in that fifth minute sequence, and he, and he does there, and he slides it over to Kulishevsky, who's 
who scores to put Tottenham up 1-0. He doesn't just make it in the fifth minute, though. He makes it in the 23rd minute. He makes it in the 26th mm-hmm. minute. He makes it in the 54th. I mean, these are these are direct, vertical, really smart runs in behind that was testing. Those, those runs were testing Manchester City because of how aggressive and how high up the field Manchester City were in possession. And they regularly had 10 men, not just inside the attacking half, but pretty deep inside the attacking half. Because of how aggressive they are, teams want to target space in behind. This is how the game works, right? When you play a giant, there's going to be space in behind. I think back to the midweek Champions League game between RB Salzburg and Bayern Munich. Salzburg defended deep, and where was the space? It was in behind Bayern Munich's back line. And they had Adeyemi and they had Adamu really targeting that space. Okafor, when he was on the field, still in that, in that Champions League game. Well, Tottenham did basically the same thing here. They had really well-timed runs from Kulusevski, but but mostly, in my mind, from Son. And they certainly don't win this game without his understanding of space, his understanding of timing, his speed, and then his technical ability inside the attacking half in the final third to actually turn those runs into something real and tangible on the score sheet. I agree with you, Joe. I think they don't win without those two. I think they certainly don't win this game without Antonio Conte. And I think so much of what you're talking about is individual, but it is also the tactics and the approach. Because that sequence of ball out wide on one side, switch to Ben Davies, Ben Davies finds Harry Kane in the middle, Harry Kane spreads it to one of the channels, happens uh, for the goal, it happens in the 17th minute and the 38th minute a couple other times as well. So much so that you can see Pep Guardiola at one point talking to his midfield and telling them where to be. Once they start basically baiting that pass into Harry Kane, Rodri will sort of faint one direction and then step right back into where he was. And two times in a row, he intercepts that pass. But then at that point, Because Rodri has adjusted what he's doing, Spurs then have their next pattern of play where they are just forcing it uh, down the line. But because there's a a gap there, there's a little bit more space. They have more support runs. And I thought this was one of those games that's very much a back back and forth game between the players, but also the adjustments from the managers. So I think credit to Antonio Conte for that win. Credit to Son and Kane, as we've already given. But Graham, maybe also credit to Kulishevsky, who I thought looked pretty uh, electric in this one and I thought was pretty uh, instrumental to this win. Yeah, absolutely. Of of the two January signings that Spurs made, they obviously signed Bentoncourt as well. Kulosevsky was the one I was most excited about. I've always been a a fan of his. I thought he was underutilised for uh, Juventus. The the best performances I saw from him were for for Sweden, where he is given a bit more freedom to be more of a creator, whereas at uh, at Juventus, he was, they used him as kind of an out-and-out winger. And Conte sort of split the difference here, and, and I just feel like he brings more to that that Spurs front three than Lucas Moura. And and I'm a fan of Lucas Moura, and he's maybe been one of Spurs' best players this season. But if you have Son and Lucas Moura on the other side in the front three, obviously Harry Kane in the middle, I feel like Son and Moura, they... they they offer a lot of the same things. You know, they're, they're players who will get in behind. And Kulosevsky can do that as well. But he is he's just a, a little bit more nimble, has a little bit more guile to his play. And so that, front, that Spurs front three of Son, Kane and Kulosevsky... I think has brilliant balance. I think they all bring different things. And I think we saw that in, in this match where Kulisevsky, one of the, the big differences Spurs between this performance and Spurs' performance on the opening weekend of this season where they also beat Man City. Let's not forget that. They have done the, the Premier League double over City this season. But that match felt a little bit like Spurs just survived target practice from City. That I think there was a lot of luck in that performance. Whereas in this game... Spurs did a really good job. Yes, they were compact and Conte likes to do that. And yes, they were. it was a six versus five for a lot of, of this match in terms of City in possession. But Spurs' build-up play was really good. And having Kulisevsky as someone to absorb the ball and not just 
punt it down into a channel, as maybe Spurs would have done under Nuno, but absorb it and maybe look for a pass for Kane, who would then play a, a good ball into Son. There was there was a structure to their play, and that was reflected in uh, Tottenham's expected goals number, which was 1.62, which is the second highest of any team City have played against in the Premier League this season. Um, it was a very, very efficient performance. Kane only has... 37 touches in this game. In terms of expected goals per shot, it was the second most efficient performance of the Premier League season so far. So City certainly dominated the territory and the possession as you would expect them to. But Spurs were just really, really efficient. And I thought that front three, it was demonstrated in that front three, including Kulisevsky. And we know Son and Kane can do what they do. But this was the first time I think we've seen Kulisevsky, the player that he can be for Spurs. And he can be a really important player for them. Uh, no arguments there. Uh, to your point about like how dominant, ball dominant City were, uh, a good kind of tale of this game I have in my notes would be in the 55th minute, the possession stat since the start of the half, half was 90% for City. And the next note I have is 59th minute, two to one, Harry Kane. So that's kind of is the hmm. way the game w- was going in my mind. And I thought it would be easy to just say Spurs had a bunch of numbers behind the ball and they broke efficiently. Graham, I I agree with you about the buildup. I also agree with you about the way they defended because yes, they get numbers behind the ball. It's a four, five, one of sorts, uh, making sure that I have that right. No, excuse me. A five, Five, four, four, one, my bad. Uh, sometimes you get the numbers switched around five, four, one. Uh, but it was very organized, which can be a bit of a cliche, but the thing that I noticed was they seemed to be banking on Man City committing and sometimes overcommitting numbers. And once Man City had sustained possession, maybe 30 to 35 yards from Spurs' goal, I saw a lot of very aggressive 1v1 challenges, stepping aggressively, trying to win the ball. Maybe you can see the foul, maybe you put a body in there. But either way, I saw Spurs really fighting for those 1v1 battles and doing so by having numbers around the ball, so that if one person would go and fight, and maybe there's just a heavy touch from Raheem Sterling, someone else is closing to pick up that loose ball. Or if there's a heavy touch from Phil Foden, maybe it's one outright, but once the ball is won, a recurring thing I saw was Kulishevsky, let's say, if he stepped to Cancelo, Cancelo continued his run, Kulishevsky was would hold there on the, I think, optimistic hope that Spurs would have the numbers in the 1v1 battles to win that ball, and twice Kulishevsky stepped, got bypassed by Cancelo, but then Spurs won the ball, and now Cancelo is 20 yards up the pitch. They play the ball to Kulisevsky, and away uh, Spurs go. And if it were just that individual dribbling, I don't know how effective it would be, but then there's such a quick build-up, one- and two-touch passing to move the ball for Spurs. I thought this was very much an an impressive performance from them and an impressive uh, managerial performance from Antonio Conte. Joe, slightly less so for Man City. I think this was a a contrasting game. Graham, I know you have some thoughts on what Man City were doing as well. But did you see anything that you think was particularly problematic or causing problems for Man City? Or was it just the case that they had a bunch of possession, Spurs had the numbers where they had them, and they couldn't really create much Man City? I think they did create a decent amount in this game. They scored a couple of goals, of course, but Gundogan has a number of of quality chances. There's opportunities here for City. And you look at the XG in this game, and again, single-game expected goals is is at times a challenging stat to really take a lot from. You want to be looking at it over a larger sample size. But if we look at that statistic, they, they outplayed Tottenham in that regard. They had more chances and they had better quality chances in this game. I thought they created just fine by and large in this one for me the thing that that let city down 
was their defending in individual moments. It wasn't what they did with the ball. It was what happened when they didn't have the ball. Not for the entire game, but you think about that that Kulishevsky goal sequence that I described earlier with Kane dropping in and Son going in behind. You know, they can't get the pressure to the ball quite right, and they can't get their offside line quite right in that particular sequence. And it's hard, right? I mean, that is a world-class pass from Kane, and I don't really use that term very often. It is a ridiculous sequence from Tottenham, so maybe there's nothing that can be done there. But still, there's an opportunity there in some way, shape, or form to do better. And then really the one that I think about is the second goal for Tottenham. It's that Harry Kane goal. Tottenham plays short from goal. Uh, Royale finds Kane on that right side who hits the ball up to Son. And it ends up being Ryan Sessegnon who collects the ball up top and plays it back to Son. And then Kane makes that run in the box and, and scores. But in this sequence... Foden is incredibly late to track back. He thinks that Kyle Walker and Ruben Diaz are going to be able to deal with that ball that Kane plays up to Son, but they can't. And the ball ends up falling to Sessegnon, Tottenham collect possession, and they they have a chance to go. And Foden's nowhere to be found on that right side, Tottenham's left side. I think those little individual moments really broke this game for City. And if they'd been a little tighter in those sequences, and I'm I'm sure Pep's going to be showing some of this film then I think we're talking about this game a little differently because I think the result, guys, is just different. Did and anyone see the... Sorry, Taylor. Did anyone no, see the, the report by Mike McGrath, who's, a, I think, he's a journalist for The Independent? He And he would he is close to the Manchester clubs. He would know this sort of thing. But he said afterward, after the game, the City defenders sat in the dressing room and they had this big, long discussion about what they did wrong in defending against a striker who dropped deep. That is very confusing to me because yep. what did City expect Harry Kane to do? And it's so unguardiola like for them to be unprepared for such an uh, an obvious threat. That is that's Kane's game, and that's presumably why City wanted Kane above other strikers last summer, is because he does link up and he does drop deep. So Guardiola knows what he's all about. City's players would presumably know what he's all about and yet as you as you highlight there Joe some of the individual defending from City was really confusing you know Diaz and Laporte were getting confused on who was going close to Kane whether they were going close at all whether they were get whether um sorry whether they were standing off him whether they were following him and it was clear in the first Spurs goal where Laporte gives himself too much to do to get close to Kane then Diaz tries to play Son offside and fails and that really set the, the, the tone for City's defending. So I, I found a lot of their defending confusing, I have to say. Do you have any thoughts, Graham, on what, like if we're giving him the benefit of the doubt, what that might mean from Pep? Because I'm with you. I can't imagine that they, that they thought Harry Kane was going to stretch the back line and try to make darting runs in behind. You would have had to know that he's going to try to drop in link up play. We've seen him do that countless times in countless situations. So I'm wondering if it was maybe how they were supposed to deal with that. Like, was it supposed to be a front and follow and they didn't always have somebody in front of him or somebody behind him? Like, do you have any thoughts on what they might have meant about how that caused them problems? I, I, I do wonder if, if they were surprised at how Spurs were sending three attackers at them yeah. when they were when they were uh, springing forward on, on the break and in, in quick transition. You look at the Kulisevsky goal, the first goal. When Kane plays, plays through Son and you're like, oh, Son's going to finish it. Oh, right. OK, he's got a player alongside him as well. So they were they were so quick to spring that Manchester City line that maybe City were surprised at that. And maybe they were surprised that obviously we all know about how Cancelo likes to push into central midfield. And he was he didn't do so much of that in this game, but he was certainly pushing high on Emerson Royale, who I think City had identified as, as a weak point in that Spurs team. So a lot of the time when when Spurs were moving the ball forward, and as we've said, they, they did a good job of building that 
that play up, it was a three on three. And I do wonder whether that was a factor, whether City were surprised at having three players, come, three attacking players coming at them when most opposition sides, even high calibre ones, will maybe only send two players on the break at them. So that's the only thing I can think of. That, that, other than that, I am a little bit baffled by, by how badly City struggled. And I think the contrast that stood out to me was that those Spurs counterattacks, as swift as they were, as as clever in the passing as they were, they created chaos every single time. That you have to have somebody slide over or two players slide over to try to deal with one player. That, that leaves space for someone else to occupy. Then the ball goes into that player. Now somebody else has to collapse. And it felt like they kept sort of creating confusion for Man City's defense. And in contrast, when Man City would have the ball, it, I, they especially in Spurs' 18, they are so reliant, and, and obviously it works for them, there's a reason they do it, but Spurs, City love that low cutback in the box, that sort of driven past cutback to the top of the six-yard box, to the, to the penalty spot. They look for it so often, there were moments when they could have shot and instead looked for that centering pass. And that works when defenses are collapsing and chaotic, Spurs, there's a moment when Kuliszewski, I'm giving him a lot of credit for making runs and not necessarily doing anything concrete aside from scoring the goal, but he has one where he pops out and then the ball, uh, it's a kind of a one-two and it goes around him. And rather than track the runner who's on the ball, he sprints back to the top corner of the six-yard box and then sets up. And it's very clear that they have been drilled on get into shape to intercept that pass. And they kept doing that over and over and over again. And this was a game, to me, in which Spurs were really reliant on Harry Kane and got the best out of him. And maybe Man City also could have been reliant on Harry Kane, Graham, and could have used a little bit of Harry Kane in their lineup. Yeah, absolutely. That was another confusing um, aspect of the of the City performance. And I've mentioned this before, City this season have been at times pretty cross heavy, heavy. And, and I don't, I don't totally understand that I have to say they made 36 crosses in this game, which is the joint second most by any Premier League team this season. The first is also Manchester City when they played 43 against Southampton in a 1-1 draw. And maybe it's about unsettling defend- defenders. Maybe it's about winning second balls are in the edge of the box. That seems very un-Guardiola. Um, but when City's front line is Foden, Bernardo and Ryan Sterling, I'm not I'm not totally sure I get the whole cross into the box uh, situation. And as you say there, Taylor, the ironic thing is that Kane probably would have been perfect for that approach, demonstrated by how he heads home the winner in this game. That was the sort of presence that, that City were missing. So I, I have... I am wary of that discussion of, oh, City needs a, a, yeah. an out-and-out striker. They need a, a, a designated number nine, because I think City this season are probably better than they've ever been under Pep Guardiola. But there, sometimes, every so often, their, their approach does confuse me, and this was one of those cases. All right. Well, congratulations to Spurs fans. Uh, commiserations to Man City, though, that they remain top. So I'm sure they're not that sad. Joe, anything else uh, from this game, or should we keep it moving? This game was awesome. That's yeah. all I have to say. I mean, the, the back and forth goals in, yep. in stoppage time, it, yeah, it was an all-timer for me in the Premier League. Agreed. And the the Romero sliding clearance at the very, very end. Oh, yeah. Was, since he conceded the penalty, it's a great penalty for Mares, but I love Romero getting a little bit of vindication at the end of that one. Uh, I, as a Man United fan, enjoyed their 4-2 win away at Leeds. Graham, were you more surprised that Jaden Sancho did things or that United scored from a corner? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was most surprised that Man United showed a bit of character and didn't just uh-huh. completely collapse after conceding those two goals because once that happened I'm like oh it's happening again second half FC it's uh, it's not going well for Manchester United but 
Yeah, Sancho, I thought this was his best performance in a Man United shirt. And he, he's recently played quite well. I think he's before this game, he'd scored two in, in four games. There have been signs that he is he's warming to the task. And I think there are also signs that Ranić is starting to build his his attack around Sancho. And that is... That's not a bad idea at all. Um, he's been involved in four games, four goals in his last five games, two assists in, in this particular game. And yeah, I thought he was the the best player on the pitch alongside uh, Paul Pogba, who surprisingly gets taken off in the second half. But then the player that he was taken off for, Fred, scores three minutes later. So maybe that Mr. Ranić does actually know what he's doing after all. Did you enjoy Scott McTominay remembering it was a derby and deciding to play accordingly with the uh, the physicality of his performance? I did actually enjoy that. Maybe that's <laughs> the Scott in me. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you might have. Uh, that's plenty of Premier League, I think. We'll talk about the Bundesliga next. First, a word from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Bundesliga We Shall Go. Bayern decided to make things dramatic for a second, trailing Grutha Firth 1-0 at the half. They then remembered they were Bayern Munich and promptly scored four goals to stay very much top of the table. But it was current Borussia Dortmund manager and former former Borussia Mönchengladbach manager Marco Rosa who enjoyed himself the most this weekend as his Dortmund team crushed his former club 6-0 in a game that felt very much, despite being in Germany, like a proper old-school English match. Cold, rain, lots of big challenges, lots of direct play, a very fun second half. But, Joe Lowry, let's start with the obvious talking point. The universe is a cruel, unfeeling monster that will stomp on the hearts and hamstrings of teenagers, regardless of whether or not it will make an entire country sad. As I said, the win was great. Watching Gio Reyna cry was not. Yeah, that sucked, right? I mean, we just, the timing could not have been any worse, yep. right? We had just talked, nope. not to make this about us, you know, but I'm going to. No, the yeah, three of us had just <laughs> talked about Gio Reyna and, and how important he will be to the national team if he's able to be back in March. And all signs were pouring in that direction, right? He had gotten on the field against Leverkusen. He played in the Champions League last week against Rangers in that second half, which was a forgettable one for Dortmund. But still, then he comes on the field against Gladbach over the weekend and gets his first start for Dortmund since August. And then, as you referenced, Taylor goes off injured and crying in the first half and has to be subbed off for Julian Brandt. We learned today from the from the Borussia Dortmund Twitter account that apparently... The, the injury to Giorena is not serious. So I don't know exactly what that means. It says Giorena did not suffer a serious thigh injury. So it was a thigh injury, and it was clearly bothering him quite a bit uh, against Gladbach. But it seems that it, it might not really rule him out for too long. I don't know that we have enough information to really gauge that yet. But Giorena may have dodged a bullet here, and that's what I'm going to choose to believe. Yeah, and he does so on, I think, Dortmund's first goal. He's crashing goal, and then I think he tries to check out of the way, and he does that by, like, jamming his left foot down and then trying to push off it in the same motion, and that seems to be where it goes. There were moments, this is a 
slightly deeper reference, but there were moments when it felt like watching Owen Hargraves play when he was out for so long, he comes back and within 30 minutes, he's done it again. And that was pretty much the end of it, uh, of his career. Really happy that that's not the case for Gio Reyna. It felt in the moment like this was going to be another several months out or potentially the rest of the season. You could see the frustration and the sadness on his face. So very happy that that is not the way it seems like it's going to play out. Uh, so we hope for the best for Gio Reyna. Uh, and just, it was really nice to see him, really nice to see him on the ball, causing problems, playing he was on the good. half turn. He was really yeah. good for that first stretch that he was on the yep. field. He drew a bunch of fouls, was physical, was technical, getting in, in the pockets on that right side for Dortmund, the left side for Gladbach, and then... Yeah, no, no more of that after about the first half hour. And 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 you guys have, have understandably focused on the USMNT side of things and how the US needs Reina, but Dortmund have also missed yeah. Reina this season. Yeah. And this season was a golden golden opportunity for him for, to step into the void left by the aforementioned uh, Jaden Sancho. And in my opinion, he offers a lot more than Julian Brand and Torgan Hazard, who are both good players. But Gino, Gio Reina, in, in my view, is just a higher technical level than those two. And so, yeah, for him to have pretty much endured a, a write-off of a season, I don't know how you guys feel, but there's qualifiers next month for the US. I would be in favour of... The US can qualify without Gio Reyna, right? If if he is not fully fit... Well, it depends on who you ask, but yeah. Don't... Well, yeah. Don't rush him back for those games, is my plea. Like, he needs to take his time. He needs to almost kind of reset his body a little bit and not rush himself back. And yes, the US are a better team without him, but they can qualify without him as well. Or sorry, they're a better team with him, but they can qualify without him. So um, The only the only thing there, Graham, is like Marco Rosa went out of his way to talk about how they had been slow bringing him back. They really waited till he felt like he was 100% good to go. The physios all said he was 100% good to go. Now it seems like maybe this is an unconnected issue, but at the same time, when we're talking about muscle injuries and upper upper leg injuries at that, maybe it is connected. So yeah, I guess caution is advised here, especially because you could see that frustration. It does feel like something that a younger player with a more eager medical team might be okay with coming back slightly prematurely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. All right. So I also agree with you, Graham, that uh, maybe we should talk about the actual teams that are playing and not the U S men's <laughs> national team. Uh, let's start with Dortmund for a moment, Graham. Uh, if, if Erling Holland were to leave, which it seems likely he will, I am going to make the argument that Neymar feels like a very appropriate player for Dortmund to go after because <laughs> sometimes Neymar is unplayable and makes the difference, is lights out, and his team wins in emphatic style. Other times he is anonymous or not even there for the game and things do not work out. This Dortmund team, I am confused by, Graham. Oh, that yes, they are a very confusing team. I have to say, when you, when you mentioned Haaland there, I have enjoyed how he's been doing his kind of Statler and Waldorf uh, yeah. act in the stand <laughs> and just just laughing. Like Dortmund yeah. were getting torn to shreds by Rangers in the Europa League last week yeah. and Erling Haaland with, a, a, it's not his agent because it's not Mina Raiola, but whoever yeah. is, uh, his pal is next to him, just laughing his head off at everything. Yeah. And he was laughing during this game. Yeah, it's, it's quite with his With his whatever beanie? Did yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's a message being sent there. But back to your original question. Yes, Dortmund, very confusing yep. team and a very confusing week. Last week, I think it's I think it's fair to say. Um, they lose 4-2 to Rangers in the, in the Europa League. That honestly could have been seven. Rangers absolutely demolished Dortmund. Looked like they could score in every, in, uh, every attack. Then you have Dortmund beating Gladbach 6-0. And even if you go further back, their last six results have been a, def- a, de- a defeat to St. Pauli, 
then a 3-2 win over Hoffenheim, then a 5-2 loss to Bayer Leverkusen at home, then a 3-1 win over Union Berlin, then the loss to Rangers, and now this 6-0 win. So I uh, I honestly don't know where Dortmund are at the moment. It feels like Marco Rosa is struggling to um, kind of put an identity on this team, which is not something I expected given how well he did that at Gladbach um, and, and the couple seasons before he moved to Dortmund. It just, it feels like he, you know, Rosa wants fast, one-touch football, but then Dortmund don't have any real build-up play at the moment. And it's and it's almost as if Rosa doesn't really know what sort of players will allow him to, to play that style. And I think Marco Reusser is, uh, Reusser is maybe the exception. He has maybe been Dortmund's best player this season. He gets two goals and three assists, a hat-trick of assists in this game, um, which is better than a hat-trick of own goals, by the way, that is above that in the power rankings. <laughs> uh, but other than Marco Reus and uh, Erling Haaland, who obviously does Erling Haaland things, I'm, I'm not sure re- really sure what the redeemable qualities of this team are at the moment, which is strange to say, given that they have just smashed Gladbach 6-0, but that kind of illustrates where they are at the moment. Yeah, Joe, all right, let, let, let's break that down then. Can you give us some things you saw that were positive from Dortmund or some things that Dortmund did well? And then also, how much of this result was Dortmund playing really well versus how much of it was Gladbach uh, not making their lives easier in the second half? Hmm. Yeah, Gladbach have their own set of issues happening right now. Uh, oh, do they? they? It's, not all, they are... it's not all roses and happiness? No, it's not all roses and happiness. Is that a Marco Rosa pun, Taylor? Huh? 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 Okay. Oh, anyway. it wasn't, but now it is. <laughs> Deliberate. Dortmund, I, I do think, did some really good stuff in this game. And it's hard to score six goals without doing at least something good, right? I mean, that's just the way soccer works. Scoring one goal is hard enough. Scoring six goals in one game is incredibly challenging. Gladbach did make it easy for them at times. But still, one thing I really like from Dortmund is how they controlled, in possession at least, central midfield against Borussia Mönchengladbach. You know, they were in that 3-4-3 shape that we've seen from them quite a bit this year, Dortmund. At the start of this one, it was Reina and, uh, and Marco Royce underneath Daniel Malin, and then it was Brandt coming in for Reina on that right side, and then him and, and Royce switched in the second half. But with those two really narrow wingers, as we often see in that 3-4-3 shape, and then uh, Modahoud and Jude Bellingham in central midfield, they were overloading and, and making life incredibly difficult for Mönchengladbach's double pivot in their 3-4-3 shape, using the, the same shape in this game. I thought in possession, with the confidence of Dortmund's center backs, Mats Hummels in the middle, they have real quality in the back line to distribute and play balls forward. With the quality there, with the, the range of passing and mobility from Dahoud and Bellingham, and the technical ability and spatial awareness of those two narrow wingers slash attacking midfielders, and, and Marco Royce in particular in this game, shined with that much better hat trick than, uh, than Michaela Moore. You know, I thought that that overload that was created by those players in central midfield, at times it was a 3v2, at times it was a 4v2, and Gladbach just couldn't keep up. And over and over again, Dortmund kept shredding, especially at the end of the first half and, and later in the second half. Dortmund kept shredding Gladbach's midfield shape, and they kept getting in the half spaces, they kept getting in behind. I mean, they were overrun over and over again in this game. Just think about that first goal that Marco Roy scores in the 26th minute. Dortmund are in possession, and it's a combination, a bit of combination play in the left half space. They just cannot, Gladbach cannot get over and really commit enough numbers to that area. Dortmund lose the ball, they counterpress, win it back, Malin shoots, Summer saves, and Royce finishes, and it's 1-0. And over and over again, they have time to, to turn, to pick a pass, to turn and combine. And I did really like that from Dortmund. Now on the flip side, guys, defensively, especially in the last 30 minutes of the first half, I mean, really in the, in the entire first half, 
Gladbach could have gotten on the board, right? Dortmund were not dominant. They didn't control space all that well. They were ripped apart a few times by Gladbach. This game could have gone very differently. Dortmund distanced themselves in the last 30 minutes of the second half. But man, Dortmund were somewhat fortunate to get those two goals before halftime. And that pretty much ended it right then and there. But Gladbach had enough chances in this game. They played through Dortmund enough times that this could have gone very differently. And Gladbach could have saved saved themselves a pretty embarrassing defeat here. At the start of the second half, it felt like there was a comeback coming from Gladbach. They had momentum, as you say, Joe. They create some some good chances. Hoffman strikes the the woodwork, but when they when they don't take those chances and they don't score, you you got yep. the sense of w- what was coming, which was some more Dortmund firepower and some more Dortmund goals, and that's exactly what happened. And I would say, I think you all have covered this really well. I would just add. For Dortmund, this game was such an emphatic win. At the same time, Joe and and Graham, I agree with you both that there are moments when it could have been much more even, and I think Gladbach did some smart things. I think Dortmund also showed why there is that erratic nature to their performances this season. Very much live by the sword, die by the sword, or more aptly, uh, live by the build-out, die by the build-out. Because you're right, Joe, that Mats Hummels, when he is playing sharp passes or carrying it forward with confidence as he did for the, I think, fifth goal is the one that he carries about 40 yards. And I love that he's driving at full speed while looking behind him to see if he's being closed down. I don't know how you do that, but he did it. But there's other moments when he gets caught in possession or he's a little bit too slow or twice he tries to play the ball centrally, but the person he's playing it to once is Jude Bellingham. I forget the other time, but both times they are just standing there waiting for it to come. Gladbach player steps in and wins it. And now there is that overload and a sharper team, a maybe more informed team, has a couple combinations, puts it in the back of the net, and it's a different game. So you can see some of that erratic play from Dortmund, but then when you're not punished for it, you end up scoring six. So I think Marco Rosa probably less concerned about this one than, say, uh, Adi Hutter. Graham, uh, what, what type of issues are we seeing for Gladbach here in the near to medium future? Uh big ones yeah yeah <laughs> they, they've taken eight points from a possible 33 that's um, not a lot they're they're just four points above the relegation playoff place in the Yikes. Bundesliga table only bottom of the table growth or fourth I always uh, struggle with that pronunciation yeah. but they have they're they're the only team that have conceded more goals than Gladbach in the Bundesliga wow. this season Gladbach have conceded 46 goals in 23 games which is two goals Every game, nice and tidy number there, but not a good number for Gladbach. Two goals every game is what they're conceding. That is, that's astonishing. And uh, yeah, Adi Hutter is, is, is under some pretty serious pressure. I think Gladbach will probably be safe this season. When you look at the teams that are below them, I think there are poorer teams. But where you consider, when you consider where this team was not so long ago, um, under Marco Rosa, who's obviously at Dortmund now, it is quite the downfall and you have to look at the the defensive ranks of that team you know Matthias Ginter has a, a really poor game here highly rated Ginter you know has has has, has thought of well um, at the top of the game they're just offering no protection to their their back three um, I don't think the wing backs are really offering much of an outlet either. So there's no there's no pres- uh, pressure being relieved by them. So it, all in all, it just feels like they are reliant on um, Embolo and uh, Player to create something or or get in behind. And it's just a not not enough to to weigh out the rest of that team, which is defensively unstable and also the individual errors and individual performances being put in are not good enough either. So that's a pretty bad combination. 
Agreed. And it also weirdly makes me think Marco Rosa is a slightly better manager than I had him in my notes as because last season they start so well, Gladbach. And then when he announces he's going to leave for Dortmund, things go off the rails, performances are poor, and it's easy in that moment. I definitely thought it was the case that it's basically just the team quit because their coach is leaving. He's saying, you're not a big enough club for me. I'm moving to a team that I think at the time was lower than them in the table. Uh, But now here we are. But you look at the way Gladbach is playing, and it makes me wonder if maybe Marco Rosa was getting good results out of them, and like the they caught up to what their level might be. Maybe that's too harsh, but for them to be close to this relegation battle is shocking. And as Manuel uh, Vaith said when I talked to him at the end of last week, it's a very distinct possibility that a big club ends up in a relegation playoff game because we've got Wolfsburg in 12th, Gladbach in 13th, Hertha in 15th, uh, Arminia Bielefeld in between them, Augsburg, Stuttgart, and Gretha Firth rounding out the bottom of the table. But we could see a lot of movement in that bottom half. I don't know who will be relegated. I feel like Gretha Firth uh, very well could be, and the 4-1 to loss to Bayern didn't do much to change that in my mind. But the rest of the, the battle seems like it could be wide open. I do hope we don't have Gladbach in there because uh, they're a fun team, they've got a lot of history, and they traditionally are fun on social media, and that's always a plus. Anything else from Dortmund's 6-0 win over Gladbach, gentlemen? Not not specifically about this game, but I do want to recommend the show you did with Manuel. Taylor, I've been meaning like to it. tell you, so I'm just going to do it now. I liked oh. it a lot. You guys did a great That's job, it. covered a ton of ground. Those shows are always really, really good. So listeners, scroll up, go back to Friday, listen to that show if you haven't already. I think it's well worth your time. It's mostly my knowledge. Manuel like tries to <laughs> chime in here and there. It's mostly me. It's right. mostly me. And on that completely disingenuous note, we'll take one more break and be back with the rest of the episode. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back to Spain we go. Real Madrid got three second-half goals to win against Alaves, the third of which featured a Brazil national team-esque series of passes. That goal was lovely. Sevilla failed to keep the pace, drawing one-to-one with Espanyol, meaning the Real Madrid, not the Real Madrid, typo there, now has a six-point lead at the top of the table. Betis remains third. And Barcelona, who had previously been back to their best until last week when they were no longer back to their best, are now back to their best (laughs) with a four-to-one win at Valencia, keeping them in the Champions League places ahead of Atletico Madrid, who kept a clean sheet in their 4-0 thumping of Osasuna. 
Atletico wins with goals. Man United wins with goals. Graham, nil-nil in the Champions League confirmed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we said that that is going to be a hot mess of a game. Yeah. So it's absolutely t- <laughs> typical if now that is a complete non-event of a match mm-hmm. after a, a slight improvement in recent performances from both teams. Uh, well, now that I have done my Ryan Bailey-esque job of shoehorning in the team that I support, let's talk about Barcelona for a moment, that 4-1 win. A statement game for Obama Yang, who got a deserved hat trick for letting a shot skip off of his back and into the net, but he really was impressive on the day. Uh, that third goal, it's a shot from what Pedri that I think deflects off of him, but in the yeah. end is given, so he gets the hat trick. Graham, would you like to apologize to him for saying he's a very bad footballer who will never have success? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I said about yep, mm-hmm, him. That was actually mm-hmm. the he- headline of one of my articles. Including um, with the strange uh, pronunciation of never. Yeah, mm-hmm, that's what you said. <laughs> I, it's certainly true to say I was sceptical of Barcelona signing Aubameyang. And look, he's only played a handful of games. This is his first start. But I have to say, fair enough. You can argue with a hat-trick on, in your first La Liga start. I think the gifting of that third goal is very generous to uh, to Aubameyang. He milked it a lot on social media. Or rather, I should say Barcelona milked it a lot. He was uh, in a lot of clips with the match ball and holding up three fingers and everything like that. So... Um, yeah, can't really argue with a hat trick. And um, he does definitely give that Barcelona team just a little bit more cutting edge. And looking at that Barcelona attack now, um, Usman Dembele starts this game. He gets an assist. He plays well. So if you look at this this Barcelona attack with Aubameyang and, and Dembele, who is probably gone in the summer, but you're still going to get a few good months out of him. That they have options now. It's pretty stacked. You know, Aubameyang, Luke de Jong, who I've also been skeptical of, but he offers Barcelona something in the air. That's a Barcelona team that plays a lot of crosses under Xavi, so he's he's good to have around. He's a good presence. So Aubameyang, Luke de Jong, Ferran Torres, Usman Dembele, Adama Traore, Memphis, who's become a bit of a forgotten figure, but he's still kicking around. Oh, yeah. And Gavi as well. Oh, yeah. um, that is. There. Yeah, well, I think Xavi Hernandez has also forgotten that he's there. Yeah. Um, that is a lot of good options yeah. and different options to have. That's what I like about it is that there's different options. You know, Luke de Jong's a very different striker to Aubameyang and Ferran Torres is a very different striker to uh, Aubameyang and Adama Tra- you have Adama Traore and Dembele, but you can also play Gavi on the wing and he's a very different sort of wide player. So all of a sudden, that Barcelona attack is looking pretty varied and, and this game was kind of a demonstration of that with Xavi rotating his his front line a little bit. He starts with Torres on the left, Ferran Torres on the left. He's predominantly played on the right so far for Barcelona, so that was slightly different. Aubameyang on the, in the centre, Torres and Aubameyang were switching position a lot, which was unsettling the, the Valencia defence. Then you have Usman Dembele to provide a little bit of, of width and vertical threat. I think that's the thing we're always going to see in Xavi's Barcelona team is now there, there's there's always going to be a Dembele or a Dama Traore to try and get to the byline. I think that was one of the things Xavi identified in the first half of the season that Barcelona were lacking. Um, so there's always a player like that in the front line. But yeah, he rotates that front line and, and gets four goals out of them. So I would say that's a successful performance. Uh, not to shoehorn, shoehorn in another Manchester United reference, but I'm going to, Graham. Uh, like, there is, I think there, there can be an inclination when a club like Barcelona or Manchester United has a former player come in and there is just like the positivity is restored, the positive vibes are there. There's this idea like, yeah, he's getting the best out of this team, he's doing it. But with Ole, it felt like it was sort of vibes above tactics. Are you seeing Xavi basically do both? Because it feels to me like he is getting 
the best out of this team. And this is a team that, when he comes in, doesn't have Obama Yang, has an angry Osman Dembele that maybe wants to be there but maybe doesn't. Serginho Dest isn't up to the standard. Luke de Jong is, is critical to the team. And somehow he's managed to get all of these players functioning. It seems like squad morale is pretty good. So I'm inclined to say Xavi is doing the vibes thing, but also the tactics thing. There, there's certainly more of a tactical um, groundwork from from Xavi than I would say there ever was from Solskjaer. That might be a, a low bar, but yep. I, I think it is true. I look at that that front six that Xavi's got at Barcelona. He's doing a lot of good work there. That midfield trio that in this game was Gavi, Busquets, De Jong. You've also got Pedri to to come in there. Nico can can go in there as well. Players that I'm forgetting about as well. They've got a lot of options in that midfield unit. But then the way they're interacting with that front three, that that unit of six is there's a lot of good stuff happening there. That that's where it is at for Barcelona right now. I still have questions about that defense. I'm not sure whether it's down to the structure or the individuals because I I do think I like Ronald Araujo a lot. He's probably Barcelona's best central defender. But Eric Garcia, in my eyes, is the Spanish Harry Maguire. I think he's quite a limited defender. I've rarely seen him have a good game, ever, really, to be honest. And I'm not quite sure how he has managed to get to this level. Um, You may have gauged that I'm not the biggest fan of Eric Garcia. (laughs) But even if you put Gerard Piquet into that team, he has his flaws. It feels like he's kind of coming to the end of his career. So I I still think there are some questions about that Barcelona defence. That's maybe the thing that prevents them from being a Champions League contender. But I think it was Dermot Corrigan who writes for The Athletic. Um, He was tweeting, if this Barcelona team starts the season in this way are they up there with Real Madrid? They, they probably are. I think that there's not much between Real Madrid and Barcelona at the moment. They're both flawed te- teams, but in terms of La Liga, they're, they're performing at kind of the, the same level right now. So definite improvement, if you ask me. Graham, I, I know you are a betting man on occasion. Uh, if you were inclined to, I'm assuming you would throw money at Barcelona qualifying for the Champions League over Barcelona finishing fifth. I would, no. Yeah, a few yeah. weeks ago I wouldn't have, but now, yeah, I would. And I, I also think... Um, Atleti might make it as well. I think. Uh, I, th- I think Sevilla. Anthony Martial picks up an injury in that in the game that they played at the weekend, the one-one draw. He was signed to be their difference maker, so that's quite a a big blow. They are only still uh, six points off Real Madrid, so maybe it's a bold call to suggest they'll fall out of the top four. But yeah, I, I would be fearful for them. And then Real Betis, it feels like they are overachieving at the moment, so maybe those two should be wary about just finishing in the top four. All right, so Joe Graham has questions about whether or not Sevilla will stay uh, in their position. He has questions about Barcelona's defense and if Aubameyang deserves credit for the third goal. I was trying to think of a player that if they did sort of duck out of the way of the shot, but then it skims off their back, goes in, that we would be like, yeah, this player absolutely meant it. He totally meant it. We know it. And you might go with the more creative players, Joe. I I feel like Clint Dempsey is one that if he did that, I'd be like, yep, he meant to do that. No doubts. He definitely did that. That's a deuce thing. No big deal. I mean, I just don't dare to doubt Clint Dempsey on or off the soccer field. So Taylor, I'm, I'm completely on board with that suggestion. Graham, I just want to see if the, uh, the brainwashing slash indoctrination is going well. Do you doubt Clint Dempsey? Say no. Not for a minute. Add no. a boy. Add a boy. So proud. I've of you never seen show. anyone uh, operate an imaginary calculator like Clint Dempsey. Amen to that. <laughs> beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. Amen to that. Joe's whispered "say no" is some solid subliminal messaging. <laughs> uh, Wasn't really that subliminal, but still. No. 
It was liminal. It was liminal. It, it was. wasn't quite super liminal of yeah. like, love Clint Dempsey, Graham. <laughs> then, then, then we know where we were. Uh, the game that we're going to spend some time on, even though we just spent some time with Barcelona beating Valencia, is the Basque Derby, which was very much a derby until things opened up in the second half. Graham, were you impressed by what Athletic Club did in this one? Because the first half felt very... Uh, emotional, very physical, lots of challenges, very slow and back and forth and stop start. Mm. But in the end, a 4-0 win is no small feat. I was very impressed with, with Athletic, Athletic Club. Obviously, their second half performance is impressive in the fact that they score four goals. I don't know any team, if, if a team scores four goals and a half, it has to be impressive. It's kind of the rule. But even, even the first half, they were, they were pretty dominant. You know, they were doing a good job of, of, of pressing Real Sociedad. And and did a good job of of disrupting La Real's uh, uh, build up play. They were struggling to keep the ball, and every time Athletic Club got got the ball, the first thing on their mind was to to attack. And th- I think it was the press from Athletic Club that that surprised Real Sociedad. They were struggling to get through that press. They did have some dangerous moments in that first half. They are uh, Imanol's team are are very good technically, so they are capable of playing through a press. Um, so they, there were some moments where they, they, they had chances in around the, the opposition penalty area, but um, Athletic just looked like they had a little bit more to them. They were being quite direct in their approach. Yuri was overlapping. Williams was running the, the channels, as, as he tends to do. And the, the the game plan just worked for them. And they had a number of standout performers. I thought Muneain was one of the best players on the pitch. Obviously, he misses a penalty in the first half. Um, he then scores and assists in the second half. So there's another sort of weird hat trick um, for this weekend. And yeah, Athletic, they just looked a lot quicker than Lariel at moving the ball, at getting to second balls, at making run runs. They were stronger at set pieces, um, which is obviously demonstrated by the first goal by Vivian, which, by the way, what a header that was. He's kind of backtracking and then sends it back to across goal to the far post with a lot of power. And by full time, it, it, it was uh, it was pretty comprehensive, and it was a historic win for Athletic. It's their their biggest win over Real Sociedad in a competitive game since 1959, which was also a four 0 win. And Athletic Club haven't scored four goals in a single league game against La Real since 1977. So there was a lot of uh, history made in what was a pretty comprehensive result and performance. And a big result because we have Sociedad in seventh. Uh, prior to this game, we had Bilbao in eighth. They're still in eighth, but they were four points back. Now just one point back. Feels like a statement win for Athletic Bilbao. For Sociedad, Graham, uh, concerns about how the rest of the season might play out because no Alexander Isak in this one, no Yanazai, missing some key attackers, things not quite as rosy as they are for Athletic Club. Their their season is starting to drift again, just like it just like it did last season and the season before. They have a, a history of starting seasons really well. Sociedad this season were up near the top of the table, then they fall away from the top of the table, but they're in the top four comfortably, and you go, okay, they're going to qualify for the Champions League. As you say, now they're down to seventh. They've won just two of their last eleven league fixtures. And uh, as you say, Isaac, he's injured at the moment. They really need to get him fit and firing again. He's had a pretty underwhelming season. A lot of that has been down to injury, but even when he's been on the pitch, slightly underwhelming for him. So yeah, a a lot of uh, concern around the way that Sostad's season is is trending. And to me, it just looks like they're they're struggling with a little bit of uh, mental fatigue. And I I do wonder how much of that is down to the the fact that they're still involved in the Europa League. They actually get a pretty decent 2-2 draw against RB Leipzig last week. So they can still turn it on when when they need to. But 
I do wonder if this this squad is is perhaps not equipped to handle European football during the week, and then La Liga top four race at the weekend. It, it maybe feels like they're they're stretching themselves a little bit, and they're finding their their limits. Graham, did I see Luis Enrique in the stands for this game? Yeah, do, you did. Yeah. All right. So the assumption would be that he wasn't just there for the uh, the festive football. He was there to watch some players. Do you think we might see some athletic players in the Spain squad and the next Spain squad? I think there's a, there's a good case for a couple. So the the one that has to be a good bet is uh, is Sanset, who uh, scores in this game off off the bench. Weirdly, didn't didn't start in this game. He's been one of their 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 best players this season. He gets a goal and assist actually in this this game off the bench. He is a a very energetic box to box midfielder. So maybe give Spain and Enrique something slightly different than they than they have. So I would suggest he is he he can uh, fancy the chances of being in, involved in the Spain squad. Um, at some point in the future. Personally, I want to see Iker Munien back in the Spain squad because of his individual arc. So for anyone who doesn't know, Iker Munien kind of bursts onto the scene 10 years ago. He's going to be Spanish football's next big thing. He has an incredible match. Taylor, do you remember when Athletic Club played Manchester United in the Europa League? Yes. And Athletic Club absolutely demolished. I hated Ferguson's Manchester United and Munayin was brilliant in that game. At that point, you're thinking he's going to be a 40, 50 million pound player. Then injuries completely destroyed his career, completely derailed him. He was a peripheral figure for a long time. But he's having a really, really good season for Athletic Club. And just for the whole kind of redemption arc thing, I would like to see him back in the Spain squad. And I think he has a decent chance as well. There's been some chat that he could be involved in that squad. So I think those are probably two players that uh, Lutro was having a look at in, the, in this one. I'm assuming that they are well stocked when it comes to housery uh, players, but if not, Raul Garcia could also be be involved just from a standpoint of infuriating the opposition and getting them to make uh, reckless challenges and picking up some cards there. Maybe that's how he factors in. But I think those are good shouts uh, for players that could be in the Spain squad. Graham, I would love to see Nyaki Williams uh, get some time. I, the commentators in this one did a really good job of explaining the dar- the derby and the rivalry, but the history and the background of a lot of the players. And I enjoyed the commentary. I enjoyed this game. I'm guessing Sociedad fans did not quite enjoy it as much. Graham, anything else uh, from this game? There were a lot of uh, ho- oh, sorry, away fans in the home end mm-hmm. for for this game. I don't yeah. know if you spotted that. Yeah. And, and I just I liked how the La Real fans. Um, just kind of they didn't leave early they stayed to the end I don't know I quite I quite like that and th- and there's something something really wholesome about this rivalry it's one, it's one of the the best rivalries around it is a fierce rivalry there's so much tradition the uh, athletic club they play this kind of uh like woods pipe song before kickoff I don't really know how to describe it but it's it's really kind of magical almost and it's one it's one of my bucket list I've not been to a Bass Derby and I would like to go it seems like there's both a real passion between these two clubs but also a mutual respect yep and I quite like that I think it stood out to me when you saw so many like like intermixed fans there was one that they kept cutting back to which was clearly either husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend but uh supporters of either club and yet yeah, still hanging out still enjoying each other uh and i think when sociedad uh have the penalty save the penalty he stands up and celebrates and it's just uh, athletic club fans around him but no violence no throwing of things so i'm with you it's a very passionate uh rivalry but also it seems to be somewhat a good natured rivalry yeah. as well scotland could never Scotland could never. Uh, I don't know how big of a rivalry there is in the She Believes Cup, uh, Joe Lowry, but I think not quite as a hotly contested affair uh, between the U.S. Women's National Team and New Zealand. Uh, Lots of talking points. I guess we should start with Michaela Moore, Joe Lowry, the perfect hat trick. 
I mean, yeah, we can. It's it's an incredibly unfortunate yeah. circumstance, a set of circumstances for Michaela Moore. I I don't know. I, I've read a couple things that talked about how the U.S. women's national team, you know, wasn't sharp in the first half or, you know, didn't create all that much. And I think that's baloney, right? I mean, the own goals in this game come from really Joe bring effective... out the big guns. The yeah, big I mean, guns. yeah, baloney, everybody. I'm, <laughs> I'm not messing around here. I mean, the U.S. created their own luck, right? It wasn't just yeah. a an yeah. accidental own goal on a back pass or something like that. All three goals that the U.S. score from Michaela Moore come from really aggressive play out wide. The first one is Sophia Smith on the left, hitting a a nice ball in, as she did a number of different times in this game with her left foot. And Michaela Moore ends up hitting it into the back of her own net, unfortunate. The second one is uh, Huerta driving down on the right side. She's right back in this game. Runner streaming into the box. She crosses it in for Midge Purse. Purse gets her head on it, and then Moore deflects it into her own goal. Again, but these are these are chances, right? The, the, that the U.S. is creating. The third one, Mitch Purse beats her defender and drives down the right wing, breaks into the box and plays a ball across, and it's the the final own goal from Moore. I I thought the U.S. women's national team played New Zealand off the pitch, which is not all that hard to do. It was clearly a a, a major gulf in quality here, a gulf in fitness and, and technical ability and speed and all of those things certainly played into the U.S.'s favor in this game. They were the better team. They were not perfect, and I still have pretty major concerns about this team, but a lot to like, and I I don't know. I want to steer the narrative yeah. away from Michaela Moore in this game because she was a, a victim of a pretty unfortunate, weird set of coincidences. One thing, uh, Graham, I'll ask you this question. Uh, Michaela Moore has the, the, the perfect on goal hat trick and then is substituted out, and I can see that making sense. She subbed out uh, with minutes still to be played in the first half. She was New Zealand's second sub of the game. Did that feel? Does that feel harsh to you? Because yeah. I can see why you would do that, but at the same time, it's not like I mean, if, they, if she scores one more, she scores one more. But it feels like maybe you give her a little bit of time to get her footing, especially when it wasn't like she was like ridiculously out of place or never should have been trying to put a foot to some of those. Like a, a lot of the plays are explainable in my mind. So I guess I'm saying the substitution felt harsh, but I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. Just why wouldn't you just leave it until half time right? and take it? Because because then. You know, she's she's scored three own goals. Okay, highly unfortunate. Um, but she then, when you take her off, yeah. five minutes before half time, you then she then has the you know the almost kind of walk of shame sort yep. of thing over to the dugout, which feels uh, unnecessary. I have to say. So yeah, just just leave it until half time when she can be substituted off. If that's what you want to do, she can be substituted off without having that sort of walk of shame moment. It felt it felt like poor man management to me. To be honest, it, 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 Agreed. it felt unnecessary. I, I will say credit to the U.S. players and the crowd because you know, and even the commentators, uh, Sebi Salazar and Julie Foudy, No one really seemed to enjoy that. It was just sort of like that's very strange. But yeah. there was a stunned silence when the third one happened that I think was mostly sympathy as opposed to gloating or mocking or anything like that. So let's stop talking about own goals, Joe. Let's talk about some of the new faces we saw. This yeah. is the same U.S. Women's National Team that drew nil nil against the Czech Republic to start this tournament. Czech Republic team that. Uh, put everybody behind the ball and made the U.S. attack. They weren't able to find a goal. Here, they're able to find five of them uh, and a lot of new faces uh, heavily involved. Joe, what did you make of that lineup? Did you like any players in particular from this one? One, I enjoyed the lineup, and I appreciate that Vlatko is using this tournament in particular as a way to evaluate players, right? It's not the highest level of competition, which is a bummer, and, and you and Steph Yang talked about that a little bit in your She Believes preview 
you know, last week or the week before, whenever that was now, the week before last, I think. This is a chance for this U.S. group to get ready for the, quali- the, the qualification tournament that's coming up in July that, that qualifies teams or can for the 2023 World Cup and the 2024 Olympics. So these are important reps. Vlaco wants to get a look at some of these younger or at least less internationally experienced players, and I think that's good. There's a ton of talent in this program. Let's evaluate some of that, and that's what's happening. Players that really stood out to me, I enjoyed the left side for the U.S. Women's National Team in in the first half. So Sophia Smith, I mentioned her name already as that left-sided winger in Vlatko's 4-3-3, played some lovely left-footed crosses, really strong 1v1. She was bright in that first half, really, really dangerous on that left side. And I enjoyed the the eight that Vlatko paired with her on that side. So one of the two advanced number eights in front of a single pivot for the U.S. On that left side, it was Ashley Sanchez, skillful, Really gives me Rose Lavelle vibes as one of those number yeah. eights. Not as useful defensively in this game. I think that's something that she can develop if she is playing a bit deeper in midfield. Because I, I don't, and I could be mistaken here, I don't think she plays quite as deep as she did for the U.S. regularly with the Washington Spirit. I think she's a little bit higher often as a 10. But man, she's incredibly technical. There's that gif of her that's going and making the rounds on Twitter of her just absolutely roasting an opponent on the sideline. The ball, I guess, goes out of bounds, but oh my word. Yeah, So felt, skillful, able like to progress that. the ball on the dribble, really technical, creative in that left-sided half space. I really enjoyed what I saw from her. Mitch Purse was effective as a vertical presence on that right side, has some technical ability as well. And then I wanted to see more from Trinity Rodman coming on in the second half of this game. She goes down injured once in the 63rd minute, then she comes back on, and then she comes off for good in the 82nd minute. It's unfortunate because she is maybe the brightest talent in women's soccer or certainly U.S. women's soccer right now. She's incredible to watch. I mean, we've seen that in NWS, NWSL time and time again. But there's no shortage of names, right? I mentioned a few of them. You've also got Katarina Macario as the nine, who I really, really like in that spot. Some other incredibly talented players coming off the bench. It was fun to see... U.S. women's national team looking a little different and, and seeing some fresh faces. Forgive me, Joe. I was writing your names down. Did you mention uh, Sofia Huerta as well? I did not, but I liked All a right. lot of what she brought at right back. Can, can tuck inside and was asked to do that by Vlatko in this game. Can provide some speed down that right wing as well. Had some nice distribution, some good crosses. Yeah, yeah I, I enjoyed her at right back. I did as well, and she gets the the assist for the fourth goal. It's a great header from uh, from Hatch to get the fourth but uh, to your point earlier about like Vlatko using new faces, bringing people through, seeing how they do, Huerta plays that ball in, gets the assist, and her reaction to it was as though she had scored a goal in the World Cup final. Like she was so amped for it, and I feel like that's what this team has meant to so many people. And so to get to see new people have that experience and enjoy it, I think that's what it's all about. So lots of reasons for optimism, but Joe, also reasons for caution. And none of my reasons for caution or none of the things I'm going to say about the U.S. Women's National Team from a tactical perspective really mattered in this game. They were dominant. They played New Zealand off the pitch. They were far better, and I think everybody could see that. But, Taylor, I think back to the Olympics, and I mentioned this in the intro to this show. I think back to the Olympics and our concerns with this team, right? Taylor, I don't know how much you remember, but I went back to listen to one of our shows to help me remember, and I read through some of my notes again and watched some different clips the U.S. wasn't all that tactically disciplined or really all that good with the ball at the Olympics, right? They struggled in build-up at times. They struggled to coordinate their off-ball movement. They were too static. The positioning a lot of the time wasn't particularly good. That's still a concern I have for this team. The The, the U.S. had some nice progression. They had some nice off-ball movement in this game. They had some nice on-ball movement, some good switches and good rotation that created space on the weak side. A lot of that stuff was good. 
But my primary concern about the U.S. team right now headed into a really important qualification tournament in the summer is that their their work in the final third is incredibly one-dimensional. I don't know if you noticed this, Taylor. I'm guessing you did. It'd be hard to miss. It was a lot of crosses for the U.S. in this game and not like cutbacks in the Man City zones that you really like and those are the optimal assist zones. It's where you want to be creating chances. But like Sofia Huerta is going to hit a cross in and then there's going to be a cross from deeper and then it's going to be Mitch Purse yeah. hitting hopeful cross in on that right side. It's going to be Ashley Sanchez doing that on the left side or Sofia Smith. Good delivery, good crosses. But for a team that can defend better than New Zealand, you're in trouble, right? And that's not just conjecture for me. We've seen that play out in the Olympics, right? Less than a year ago now. And I, we still haven't seen much development yeah. at all tactically in the final third from this team to the point where Taylor and I tweeted this last night. It's got to be a deliberate tactic and a deliberate thing from Vlatko at this point. There was a sequence, and I, I I tweeted this out, and I put a little screenshot in our Google Doc so that you guys could see it. It's the 54th minute, and the ball comes out to the right side. And the U.S., instead of going to support or, or going to combine on that right side, they just crash the box. There's a run that's being made on the right side that then the, the direction completely changes. Instead of going to support in the wide area, they move into the box waiting for the cross. There's maybe four numbers already in the box and one more streaming in to get on the end of a cross. It's it's clear that that's what Vlatko wants from this team. I guess that, that's maybe where he and I disagree slightly about how to create chances. But it seems to me that the U.S. women's national team is going to live and die by relatively hopeful crosses and quality in wide areas. And they have good crossers and they have quality in wide areas. Maybe it pays off. But after the Olympic campaign that we saw, I am I'm skeptical. And I think that's fair, Joe, because like for... Two primary reasons. The first would be in that uh, still you sent. Yeah, I think it stands out to me that the cross isn't even being delivered and players are already in where you would expect them to be for their like final approach to try to challenge for a cross coming in, which means that they're inevitably going to be static and then having to recycle runs or it's going to be just, as you said, a hopeful cross into the box, which maybe works against a team like New Zealand, who didn't have a ton of time to prep, hadn't really played that many games together, still tried to press the United States. And I think... Cause a little bit of difficulty in the opening, maybe two minutes, but then the U.S. gets that first goal. New Zealand, I think, keep trying, but really fade pretty quickly. But contrasting that with the Czech Republic game, where the United States does not score, is still crossing. There are still some of those issues. I think you're right, Joe, that against opponents who are going to be open and try to go at the United States, I think they'll still be able to rely on that technical ability and they're just their overall talent. Against teams that are going to sit in and make you beat them, they've got to have a few more looks. And right now, we still haven't seen that, but maybe that's what this tournament is for, to refine those, get some more chemistry, and just get that level of competition up in the camp so that people aren't resting on their laurels. They're pushing themselves, they're figuring new things out, and eventually they win the World Cup again. How about that? I'm I'm down for that, Taylor. I'm right. stoked for every step even before that, right? The Wednesday game against Iceland, I think we'll learn more about this team. July, you know, I, I think there's lots of opportunities for this U.S. team to continue to get reps and to refine what they're what they're doing out there on the field and for different players to get involved and, and maybe edge out some of the veterans here. So I'm excited to watch this team and, and monitor them throughout the rest of this year and headed into some pretty important years in, in 2023 and 2024. Yikes, almost messed that up. Joe, um... All good there. I've messed up plenty of this show. Uh, one thing, since you went back and watched the U.S. games in the Olympics, um, I feel like I remember when, let's say, the right center back in this game, it was a lot of cook, uh, gets the ball. I feel like what I saw was the fullback would go wide, and then one of the central midfielders, the pattern tended to be, would also go wide, and then the wide attacker would go into the middle, and they would have yeah. numbers in the middle. 
I so I wanted to make sure that was still the case because in this game I did feel like I saw some new uh, wrinkles because routinely when a lot of Cook is on the ball, Sofia Huerta would go central. Mm-hmm. Christy Mewis, the right side of central midfielder, would push up into that advanced position, and that would leave Midge Purse like basically the entire right hand yeah. side of the pitch, yeah. and that felt new to me. Although I guess ultimately it remains the case that you then have numbers central and further forward, and a player trying to cross into the box, don't you? Yeah, I think the underlying principles are the same, right? And Vlaco does, for for what I've criticized in the final third, he does want his team to rotate and move and, and create some qualitative advantages and some also some some numerical advantages based off of where players are positioned. So I don't think it's uncommon to see a fullback pinching in or to see a, a central midfielder moving wide or a winger staying wide and a midfielder maybe really tucking into that half space. None of those things I think are all that new, but maybe the specific rotations and who's moving where those things might be new. And Mitch Purse Taylor, I'm totally with you, had tons of opportunities to attack isolated on that right side. And credit to her, she had a really good game. All right. Well, we've got one more game for the U.S. Women's National Team in the She Believes Cup against Iceland. Uh, that would be Wednesday evening, 9 p.m. Eastern. Iceland defeated the Czech Republic 2-1. to one, So I believe the winner of this one wins the whole thing. Uh, let's get that W, U.S. Women's National Team. Uh, now we have come to the part of the show in which Joe and I are confused by how much work Graham is able to do over the weekend because Graham <laughs> still has games to, to discuss. Graham still has thoughts, and we go to Graham Corner now for Graham to talk about all the other things that he saw this weekend. <laughs> well, top of, the, top of my list uh, of talking points in has Graham to Corner. be You Neymar's... have to call it Graham Corner. I need it to be oh, Graham. Graham Corner. Yeah, thank okay. you. Mm-hmm. Graham loves that, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Neymar's penalty. Did you guys see that? I have not. I'm really excited for you to describe it. It might be the worst penalty of all time. And I saw I saw Wilfred Zaha's penalty a couple of weeks ago for Crystal Palace. Um, he basically just passes it straight at the goalkeeper. Um, there's no disguise to it at all. It's not a, a no look. It's not a, a poor connection, which the Zaha one was, was kind of like a poor connection. He didn't mean to put it where he put it. But Neymar seemed to put it exactly where he wanted to put it and he just kind of went here you go mate there's the ball back <laughs> and uh yeah it was actually really costly for PSG because they were 3-0 down at half time to Nantes um they then score one minute into the second half to make it 3-1 they then very quickly get a penalty and you're going okay well here we go this is now PSG you're gonna win this he then misses that and it almost kind of knocked the stuff out of PSG again. They didn't offer much for the rest of the match. Yeah, they saw lots of the ball, but Nantes were, their goalkeeper had a very good game. But other than that, it was quite comfortable for them and the PSG lose 3-1. Not that it, you know, matters in the league yeah. on title race this season. But it's so tight very now. Strange. It's so tight now. <laughs> yeah, it's so tight. What is it, like 30 points or something like that? between 13. 13 first and points. Second? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, close enough. But yeah, uh, yeah very strange uh from PSG, who go from being very impressive against yep. Real Madrid in the Champions League during the week to then losing 3-1 to Nantes. It's so almost I'm not really like sure. they got really amped up for Real Madrid and then less so for their domestic schedule yeah. where they're already like cruising to the title yet again. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then finally, very quickly, if we go to Italy, because I feel like on a weekly basis we kind of have to update what is happening yeah. in Italy and Serie A because it is the best title race in, in Europe this season. Um Enter Milan, they lose 2-0 at uh, Sassuolo, which is uh, very surprising. They got what they deserved, though. Very poor defending throughout. Uh, Sassuolo were 2-0 up after 25 minutes. They deserved to be... Um, th- it was just so easy for them to to score the second Sassuolo goal as, as a... Uh, 
across into the box and then a header completely uncontested I'm not really sure what Inter were doing goalkeeping for the first goal from Handanovic from Raspadori who has been linked with Inter Milan recently so that's quite interesting so just a very very poor performance from, from Inter and it wasn't much better for AC Milan either who drew uh, 2-2 with uh, Salernitana who are bottom of Serie A it was 2-1 to Salernitana for much of this match AC Milan scored a, a late goal through Ante Rebic who it's pretty much just a, a a pot shot from distance with 10 minutes left to, to salvage a point. At the time, that felt like two points dropped because this was actually before the Inter game, but then Inter lose, so maybe it's a, a point gained. But the real winners of the weekend in Serie A are Napoli, who play on uh, Monday evening before, uh, sorry, after we're recording, and they can go they can go top of Serie A um, with three points. Um, so that would be quite remarkable given it looked like they'd fallen away a few weeks ago. They've got Cagliari tonight um, in Serie A, so if they win that game, they go top of the table. And yeah, it just continues the idea wow. that Serie A is the best title race in Europe at the moment. By far. Wow. By far, guys. Yeah, I did not realize how crazy things were. I also didn't realize we had, I think, three wins in total in Serie A this weekend. Not a lot of winning, <laughs> but we'll see if Napoli uh, make that four. Uh, I'm guessing they're hoping they will. Did not realize that they had that superior goal difference, plus 29. And you would assume if they win, that will increase because that's how math works. So yeah, a win puts them top. Uh, until next week when somehow it's like Atalanta coming back on out of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> but when that happens, I'm sure we'll discuss it. For now, gentlemen, thank you for talking about all of the many, many things we've talked about today. Lots and lots of good football discussed, I hope. Well, Graham Ruthven, thank you for taking all the time to watch all the games, to talk all the games with me today. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. You did a, a very good Ryan Bailey uh, impression while he is busy finding the only Starbucks in Italy, if you look at his uh, <laughs> Instagram account. He has finally found one in Milan. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Basic Bailey. Oh, and while Basic <laughs> Bailey, while Basic Bailey is not here, let me just say that uh, Chiellini is a very talented defender who's never committed a foul and I think w- <laughs> never would and, and wins things fairly. So just want to praise him talk. and praise Graham Ruthven and praise Joe Lowry for being here as well. Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, buddy. Uh, Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. England will never win the World Cup again, uh, and we will talk to you again (laughs) very soon. 